This is a Poetry Uncaged podcast from Dergale Press, the independent small press based in Brighton, which takes its name from Gerard Manley Hopkins's poem, The Caged Skylark. You can find more about the work we publish on the Poetry Uncaged blog at www.dergale.com. My name's Paul O'Prey, and in this episode I'm talking to one of our most distinguished poets, David Harsant. David has won numerous national and international prizes for his poetry, including the Ford Prize, the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Griffin Prize. During the conversation, we talk about David's new pamphlet from Dergale Press called Of Certain Angels. And we also talk about the remarkable operas he's created in collaboration with the composer Harrison Birtwistle. David also talks about his career as a writer of thrillers and TV dramas. This is perhaps a less acknowledged aspect of his work, given that he writes his thrillers under a pen name. David and I met for lunch at the village pub, and then we went back to his house in the Surrey Hills, where we sat in the kitchen and chatted over a cup of tea. David, I wonder if you could start by saying something about the genesis of the of this sequence of poems. You've got to, it starts with an epigraph from uh, Rilke about all angels are terrifying yeah. and uh, from the Duino, I think it's the second Duino elegy and he famously started that those elegy poems um, because he heard a voice. Um, did you hear a voice or you know, <coughs> how did it start? I didn't hear a voice, no. Um, <laughs> although um, when it's interesting when people say that, that people hear voices, <clears throat> so therefore probably needs sectioning or psychiatric help or something. Everyone hears voices. And you might not... It, you, you imagine the voice, mm. and, and you can hear that person's voice speaking. I mean, I can mm. still hear the voices of people I knew when I was a child, not these schoolmasters, <laughs> talking to me and telling me that's no way to do or whatever it is, or couldn't I put my back into it or something. And you hear, you do hear the voice, but no, I, I didn't. I didn't really hear a voice. But I, I've been pestered by angels for some time. They've cropped up in my work before, mm. and are still cropping up in my work. And I think when I was a child, I was brought up a Baptist, which is um, supposed to be the first step towards Catholicism. I gather from oh, uh, various clerics I've spoken to. The Bishop of London once said to me. Um, have you ever been a believer? And I said, no, but I was brought up a Baptist. And he said, oh, you'll become a Catholic. Because I went to church, I went to chapel, generally speaking, twice a day Mm. in the morning and then uh, for Sunday school. But I'd quite often go with my grandmother, who was an Anglican, to Evensong in the evenings. And one of the... um, I read the Bible a lot. And like Don Patterson, I was at one point a, a sort of not exactly a street preacher, but I was a playground preacher. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a, I had seen um, a, a book of Doré's engravings. I lived in the library, basically. Mm. This is mm. how I, mm. you know, I come from working class family. We had Readers Union books, but no proper books, if you like. And so I lived in the library a lot. And I'd seen Doré's engravings of um, Lucifer's fall and this kind of thing and I mean Gustav Doré's angels are famous as we know and notable and um, the line 
um, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, mm. impressed itself on me when I was a child. Um, and lines of that sort lived with me and still do mm. live with me. So the angels were sort of there or thereabouts. Um, in fact, I, I once called a, I, um, I, I, I gave a, one of the thrillers that I used to write to make a dollar, titled The Sons of the Morning. I read um, it, yeah. Which my grandson nicked for the name of his band, actually. Right. <laughs> um, there are angels preceded these angels, and angels have followed these angels. And I'll, I'll give you, I've got a, a new collection coming in a couple of years' time, Fraver. And um, I, I could give a little preview of, yeah, that, that so, of that this is this is um the new book which is coming in 2024 is um it's a book of sequences and this poem which is called art is from uh, one of the sequences that's called at the window so this is picking up if you like the subject of angels angels swim in the air above the rooftops almost dawn almost dawn light, blue half-light in the room, perhaps the voices of angels, these alone, are heard only by the dying, that remorse is all they sing. My face turns back to me, a flaw in the glass will test what I think or write or want or love. In this a measure of grief, a measure of grace. Beauty and dust are so close, sin and delight. If my heart stops now, stops now, I will hear them at last. Mm. So there were some an attendant angels, as it were. So the angels have been around for a while, but of course, you know, I I I reread Ilka Roka, yeah. um, you know, uh, um, wonderful and that sort of, you know, fierce attack of inspiration when he was at the Duino Castle, uh, and this notion of all angels being terrifying, I think, is interesting. My angels are sort of secular angels, rather like Roka's angels. Roker, I gather, um, rather liked um, Muslim angels and oh, Muslim manifestations that were angelic. B Biblical angels tend, I think, they, although they're often said to be sexless, they tend to be masculine. Game, Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer. Um, your angels are female. They are. Are all of your angels female? Yeah, I think they are. <laughs> they're all female. A long time ago, uh, Roger Garfield, good poet, I was reviewing a book of mine. It was probably my third or fourth collection. And he said, you must always look for the feral woman in David Harson's poems. All my angels are feral women. And they're not really forgiving or or healing. Yeah. Um, they're provocative creatures, I think. And uh, But they are attendant. They are there, not like you know the angel of legend who cares and watches watches over you the guardian angel but there they are at one shoulder 
you give them some uh, rather striking and intriguing titles that seem they seem on on one sense playful and on the other sense puzzling and and oh you know I just there's the angel of transformative light the angel of the surrogate quotidian the angel of cureless anhedonia do you, do you want to say a bit about about those names you've given them yeah I well the the angel of yeah <laughs> the angel of um transformative light just that just came into my head and i i titles are a nightmare aren't they really um but i just didn't want these angels to be roman numerals as it were you know right, yeah. angel 1 angel 2 angel 3 and i thought they deserved to be personalized they they need to be given personalities they need to be given motive in a strange kind of way they needed to be given action um and agency but the angel of transformative light just that title just appeared and it seemed to me to be right if perhaps you know just a touch decorative <laughs> and then i sort of thought they probably ought to follow suit hmm. i mean the angel of lost things which comes next is next is is a sort of fairly straightforward thing but then I just let the titles find their way, so I, I rewrote some of them. I'm not sure the Angel of the Surrogate Quotidian was originally the Surrogate Quotidian, but I, I did then want to sort of keep going with that. But I, I didn't really have to strive too much for them. Um, I just sort of, I, I just didn't query them. I just didn't think, is the Angel of Risk or, or and Regret really uh, a title that describes, well, it does actually describe this angel. But Curious Anhedonia, well, that does describe her. And Furtive Eschatologies, I think I just wanted, yeah, I wanted to sort of keep that slightly puzzling, slightly, perhaps slightly over-decorative mm. notion going. There's a bit of baroqueness in the names. Yeah, there? venereal nocturnes I like. <laughs> And, you know, some do their job perfectly well. The mm. Angel of the Skyborn mir Mirage, for example, and the Angel of the Good Death, which is what that poem yeah, that's very is about. And, yeah. So I, I can see that they're slightly, I don't know, eccentric, but I like them for that. As well as your poetry, of course, you've been extremely successful across a, a broad range of genres. And, for example, you've written operas with Harrison Burtwistle. And there's certainly a great musicality and attention to sound and rhythm in your verse. I think that, that for me, image and music and word choice are the crucial aspects of, of poetry. I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that they should be looked for mm. or forged in either sense, forged, heavily made or overmade or faked. But certainly they're, they're the ingredients that always seem to me to be indispensable. Writing, oddly enough, writing for the opera stage is a slightly different business. That is to say that the the lyric, you know, you, you can write lyrics or write lyrically if you are writing an aria. But for recitative, it's better not to write mm. quite so lyrically. You're writing a play, in effect. Yeah. And you're quite often writing direct speech. And that has to be singable. An aria can be more intense, 
Well, it's not to say the recitative can't be intense. It can be because it's interaction, but it can't be lyrically intense. I think mm. it doesn't really work. Yeah, um, half my life really has been since Harrison Burtwistle cold called me in the mid eighties um, and asked me if I'd like to write an opera with him. Uh, and I, I'd never met Harry, but I, I knew his mm. work. I'd been to see uh, Punch and Judy at the Drill Hall in London and was you know just knocked off my feet by it I thought it was just extraordinary and he was an extraordinary man um, he died earlier this year and I, I'm still getting over that mm. fact I think he was quite the most interesting mind I'd ever met his was the most interesting mind I'd ever met uh, I think he was a genius and what he did he did more or less instinctively I mean obviously with music, it's different. That is to say, the technique, uh, as Harry used to say, that you know, notation. He said, if only you understood about notation, you know, it takes forever. I was a, I was green. I mean, I'd never, I loved opera and I loved music, but I'd never written for the for the opera stage. I'd never even written for the theatre, really. Mm. You've also written, uh, you know, TV dramas and thrillers under the name Jack Curtis and and yeah. David Lawrence. Yeah. And I saw there was a Washington Post interview with you. With, which was called David Harson Thriller Poet, uh, yes. which I, I think is is a great um, great handle. And there's clearly in this of certain angels. I feel in each of the, these thirteen poems there is a sense of drama and narrative, and an atmosphere of suspense and uneasiness, a, a sense of noir, which it reminds me a bit of your thrillers. And and the first poem, the first verse of the first poem. You know, you open the sequence and it almost feels like we're at a crime scene. Something bad is yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there are moments in in um, in Lost and I think also in Fire Songs where it, this, the the um, depiction, if you like, mm. or a depiction, does sound a bit like a uh, like a crime scene. And in fact, um, I read a poem not so long ago, which is uncollected. Um, which is about um, waking up in the morning or someone, a person waking up in the morning and it is a crime scene, there's blood everywhere, yeah. blood on the walls, blood yeah. on the floor, blood yeah. on the car. Um, I mean, it's a metaphor, of course, <laughs> for something else. But I, I started writing thrillers simply because I wanted to stop being a publisher. <laughs> um, and uh, somebody once said to me, what was it like? I, I spent 10 years being a publisher, um, what was it like? And I said, well, it was like a 10-year panic attack. Mm. Um, I was completely out of place. I mean, I, was, I think I was quite a good editor. And if I think I was a very good editor, but I was an absolutely appalling businessman mm. um, because I didn't care. Um, I had no ambition um, to be a businessman or to strike a good deal. or I just wanted to publish certain books. And... And the, the books I wanted to publish were not, generally speaking, the books I did publish because I was working for a commercial publisher. Yeah. Um, it was a commercial list. Yeah. Um, but I did edit rather a lot of thrillers um, along the way, or publish would be a better way of putting it, because we were receiving house, being mm. a paperback house. And when I'd absolutely had enough and had myself creatively fired from my third publishing house, I, I basically, and not for the first time in my life, and not for the last time in my life, had my back to the wall financially, and I didn't know what to do. And 
my then just ex-partner was a publisher and then just became an agent and I found her up and said I've got no idea what to do next what shall I do and she said well you know you like thrillers you used to read thrillers on the beach and you know why don't you write a thriller mm. so I wrote this book called Crow's Parliament and it turned out that I could I mean you know I got no qualifications really mm. for writing a thriller I, I hadn't I had written a novel, I'd written a novel called From an Inland Sea under my own name, but I, and it, it was sort of episodic and fragmentary and so on. But this was a matter of writing 110,000 words um, with a coherent narrative and, and, and puzzles, plots, mm. um, whodunit notions and so on yeah. and so forth, or what was going to happen next notions, and moments where you had to make the reader sit up and take notice. and. Um, I didn't know if I could do that, but I assumed I could, which was probably arrogant of me. But So I had just been commissioned by the Royal Opera House to write the libretto for Gawain, the first opera I did with, with Harry. And I was living in a tiny flat, I was sharing a flat with a friend, and I had the bigger of the two bedrooms. And I, in the bedroom I had two desks, and two, wait for it, typewriters. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, one was for Gawain, and the other was for Crow's Parliament, which was the Goodness book me. Yeah. I was writing. So I spent three days working on time. Crow's Parliament, yeah. three days working on Gawain, yeah. and one day going to the gym or running. Um, and um, eventually the book was published, and it did very well. <laughs> Um, and I managed to buy a flat just off Holland Park Avenue with proceeds. And I thought, well, if I can do this once, I can probably do it again. And it turned out I could. Mm -hmm. And I wrote 12 thrillers in the end and made a reasonable living doing it. Um, and then I decided that I might as well write for television. <laughs> um, and so I thought I could do that too, and it turned out I could. Mm. And I have absolutely no idea, and I wouldn't at all want to brag about it, I have absolutely no idea how, I thought it was just like a trick. You know, if you got the, if you got the trick, you could do it. Mm. And there may be some truth in that, I don't know. Mm. And I'm sure that, you know, Stephen King and others would, you know, thriller writers would disagree with me and say it's a great deal of hard work. And so I used to write these in three months. Yeah, really. And they were 110,000 words. Yeah. And it turned out that I could. And when I started writing for television again, I just found that I could. Um, and it worked. And I was really quite good at it. it turned out. You're very good at it. Robert, <laughs> Robert Graves, um, he became, he's probably still best known as a novelist, the writer of I, Claudius. Oh. But he always saw himself primarily as a poet. And he used to, he used to, he, he used to write prose for money. And his way of putting this is, Prose was the dogs I bred in order to feed my cats, which was the poetry. So he wrote prose in order to live. Is that how you've seen your prose? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I never, I never try and, I never try and, you know, hide the fact that I, I wrote commercially. I don't anymore, uh, or or talk it down if it comes to that, because um, I did rather like thrillers. They were, you know, and uh, so I, I, I never sort of want to denigrate it or suggest that it's you know a sort of tiresome tiresomely second-rate thing to be doing 
Um, but I wouldn't have, had I been a rich man, I certainly would never have right. written commercially. Because, um, yes, it kept me from poetry, but then, you know, all poets need day jobs, as we know. Mm. Thomas once amusingly remarked, well, po poets are born, not paid. <laughs> um, and uh, so everyone, you know, has a job of some kind or another. You know, most poets teach, which, I mean, I did too, as we know. And um, others had other jobs, and you know that was my day job for a while, and and it paid well, mm. and it didn't take well. Writing for television took up slightly more of my time, um, because I could sit in my study writing a thriller, and it would take me three months, and I just ignored all else until it was done. Mm. And that was okay; it gave me nine months of the year free, um, and I I was making a decent living, so that was okay. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, so I didn't feel as if I was traducing my gift or something of that kind, uh, because everyone has to earn a living. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I worked for 10 years in a bookshop, 10 years as a publisher, um, on and off as uh, universities, and then latterly, of course, we know, as Roehampton, for eight wonderful years. People and, like, and it beat uh, going to the office. This is the thing. It beat the hell out of going to the I office. I was going to ask you, I wonder if there were jobs you thought that poets should... I mean, um, you know, um, William Carlos Williams famously a doctor, but Elliot, a bank, worked in a bank. No, at Faber. Yeah. yeah, and then at Faber. Is there anything you think poets shouldn't work at? Is there? I was asking... Hedge fund manager, maybe. Hedge fund manager, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That, that high on the list of shouldn'ts. Although Wallace Stevens, of course, um, you know, was an insurance um, banker. Mm. Um, I was once being interviewed by Sky Television, and the guy, we were talking about this particular issue that poets had to earn a living. And um, he said, what did I think was the perfect job for a poet? And I said, bank robber. <laughs> <laughs> he was slightly taken aback. And I said, well, it doesn't take long, and if you pull it off, it's fine. So, so all those things, uh, you know, I've still got a library of my thrillers, and I've still got somewhere in storage uh, most of the scripts I wrote. Mm. And, um, you know, I wrote, I, wrote, I wrote with some very skilled and, and uh, likeable and amusing and talented people, Maurice Grant and Lawrence Marks particularly come yeah. to mind, who taught me everything I know about writing situation comedy. TV writing seems to me also a really well-honed craft in the way, because it's so expensive to do and so yeah. time-limited. It seems yeah. to be incredibly craft-driven writing. Is that true? Or? Yeah, it is. That's right. Of course, situation comedy is immensely difficult to write. Yeah. You think it's a cinch, and that's how I started. I started writing comedy shows because I thought, well, this is, a, this is easy. Mm. It's only half an hour long. It's full of jokes. But, of course, it's really the most difficult thing to write yeah. because you're telling a story and trying to make people laugh at the same time without actually telling jokes. All humour has to proceed from characters. Yeah. Morris and Lawrence taught me. I fell into their hands by sheer accident, um, and they liked what I did. And... Uh, um, so I worked for a long time on, on a series called Love Hurts. Mm, I remember it. Adam Faith and yeah, Zoe Wanamaker. Yeah, watch that. And it was it was fun, but I but then I could actually. That was the point, really. That that uh, because I wasn't going to an office and because I wasn't called on to go to meetings, because I wasn't running a department anymore, which yeah. I had been as a publisher, and um, I wasn't responsible to 
you know, the CEO or whoever it was, I was just able to to write, uh, let's say, a thriller. Um, spend three months of my life writing a thriller, and and quite enjoying it, mm. point of fact, and, mm. and coming up with you know how things were going to go, making little notes about how it would go next, mm. and and so on. I was my own boss. I could get up when I wanted. I could go to work in my underwear, mm. uh, <laughs> and um, you know. Uh, Get a day's work done, set mm. myself a target, and uh, and sort of feel, yeah, this is okay. This is going to work, and mm. I think this will be published. And and they all option. Every book I wrote, apart from one, was option for a movie. So that was kind of extra Amazing. money. Yeah. They were published in I think fourteen languages throughout the world. So there were foreign rights and that kind of thing. I was doing okay, and and it, it wasn't painful. Mm. I wasn't thinking I could be writing a poem mm. instead of doing this. I was thinking, well, I've got nine months mm. where I can do nothing but write poetry. Mm. And it was interesting that when I was writing Crow's Parliament, the first thriller I ever wrote, I was wrote, writing three days that, as I said, and three days Garwain. And, you know, Garwain was a triumph. It sold out at the Royal Opera House. Yeah. And, you know, my part in that, to, to write the libretto, and to work with Harry, which was heaven on earth, mm. Um, everyone thought he was a grumpy, sort of ill-tempered man. Nothing of the sort. Yeah. Great sense of humour, and um, and um, uh, but also total focus on the job. Yeah. Going back to on, uh, to um, the sequence uh, of certain angels, the poems they explore some you know some pretty serious themes like love and loss and sex and death. And it strikes me there's a sense of. Uh, each each one is approached with a sort of sense of courage and bravery. And I'm not suggesting it's autobiographical, but there were one or two moments in these poems, and I did wonder. There's a poem, The Angel of Risk and Regret, for example, which starts with the, the phrase, airborne in a stairwell. And I wondered if that was connected to uh, a childhood accident that you had. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. I mean, I've been writing about that and <clears throat> thinking about that all my life. It's it's one of the it's one of the things I carry with me everywhere, and it crops up in my work a lot. But yeah, I I fell down a stairwell when I was eleven, and we were living in a flat above a post office in Bid Buckinghamshire. Um, we had the flat because my grandmother was the night telephonist. Uh, we were a pretty poor family. Um, her, my grandmother's side, my mother's side, if you like, of the family was quite middle class and and. Um, you know, not without money. Um, my father's side were that sort of horny-handed sons of toil from Devonshire, um, and he was a bricklayer. My grandmother was twice widowed, so there was no money there, apart from a bit of support from the, her side of the family. So she had taken this job uh, as the Sunday and night telephonist at the telephone exchange in the days when you had to go mm. into a phone box and, listen to, and somebody would say what number do you require call up please put your four pennies in the box press button B or press something. button A A was it yeah. I never knew what button B was for if you couldn't get through oh. you got your, you got your fourpence back <laughs> um, you were told to press button A because the operator would phone the number and they would say hello and she would say hold the line I have a call for you and then she'd come back to you in the phone yeah. box and say, um, press button A, and, and you'd be connected and you're to, in, your, yeah. to your, yeah. Um, anyway, we were on the top floor of this 
building in this tiny flat where I lived with my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my aunt, my mother and my father when he returned from the war. And I went there once with Hugo Williams who was writing a piece about me and he said could we go back because Hugo had lived in a posh house up on White Leaf which was the nearest posh bit to Princess Risborough where I lived. And um, Hugo takes a wee camera with him everywhere he goes and he was taking snaps of the flat as we went round and he said who did who, who lived here and I told him he said where did you all sleep and I realized <laughs> I had no idea yeah. except that I knew that I slept in my grandmother's bed at night because she was on night duty yeah. and she slept in it during the day but where everybody else slept I don't know because my great-grandmother was bedridden so she had a bedroom to her only three bedrooms yeah, yeah. so um Anyway, uh, I was going to Sunday school, so my angel was taking a nap or something, and um, I used to slide down the banister from the top oh landing, and I used to slide down on my stomach, and I leaned over, and I leaned too far, and I fell down the stairwell, and it was about, it was close to a 30 feet drop, it was a very, very long fall onto a concrete floor. Hmm. And my aunt, who was there with me, she was the one that uh, used to, she was the Baptist, <laughs> used to take me to Sunday school and so on and so forth. Rushed into the exchange and asked me, I said, told my grandmother what happened. My grandmother found the doctor, and although it was a Sunday, the doctor answered. So she told the doctor that I'd fallen from the top landing, and he knew the geography of the yeah. place, and, yeah. and he said, is he dead? Gosh. So obviously my, my angel had woken up. Yeah. <laughs> I was paying attention. And not only was I not dead, but I'd only suffered concussion. I hadn't broken a bone. Nothing broken. Nothing broken. Should have broken my back, my neck, everything, yeah. you know, legs. But I hadn't. I spent a couple of days in hospital. That was all. But it's um, left a lasting uh, experience of falling. I remember the falling. And I remember I turned in the air and I looked up where I'd fallen from. Hmm. And this is absolutely indelible in my memory. Hmm. There was a crack running the whole width of the upstairs landing. And I remember thinking, I must tell Grandma about that. It's not safe. Oh. That feeling of flying of being airborne and and the crash that then happened somebody has asked me about this recently and I said um, that there was there was an, a word that was onomatopoeic you know for which is something like collapse or crumble or you know the way that it's it sounds like something disarticulated yeah um, I remember the impact and, and a loss of consciousness then? Or? No. No, you didn't. Because when the doctor said, is he dead? My grandmother said, I don't think so. He's moaning. Hmm. So, <laughs> so this feeling of the, the business of falling and being airborne, I've written about again and again. Yeah. And I think it's what, well, I say again and again, a number of times. And I think it's one of the things that, that causes me to be so fixed on birds and flight. Yeah. And also the business of of ending your life by by falling so i think of people like hart crane jumped off the back of a boat in the gulf of mexico i think of um paul salan hmm. who jumped off the pont marabo and was washed up in a weir god no I mean, he was a very strong swimmer salan i don't know how you i suppose the impact with the water hmm. um and john berryman of course yeah. who actually missed the water and hit the mud but that business of taking your life by that method is very interesting because first you fly first you fly mm. 
and and I have written about that mm. and birds in flight and the notion I I coming back again and again to things I'm very interested in, and I've become more interested recently and it happens in of certain angels the business of repetition um, in the way that a musician will repeat himself a phrase or a theme or a chord think of the Tristan chord for example mm. so this business of repetition has become very interesting to me and the business of of flight and falling where falling is where falling is flight for a time for a short time falling is flight really fascinates me and I wrote there's a I'll read it to you there's a tiny I've written a little sequence called The Edge of Sleep um, which is again uncollected yet it's going to be published by the Swedenborg Review and it's it's a, a series of, of tercets which you point out I often use um, there's something about the tercet that I like it, it's, um, it's a little package a little package of image and and beats and a certain kind of music in a longer line. So this, for example, is one of the double tercets in The Edge of Sleep. Pen to page, brush to canvas, finger to key, that and more. Sleeper's portal, sleeper's death's door opening onto a cage that holds whatever's hurt, whatever's mortal. So he wakes in sadness or rage, that substitute for prayer, to watch the night sky lift, not caged, unfree. That game of truth or dare lasted all night, first line, a gesture, the E above middle C. And what that perhaps slightly obscure last Mm. line is, the pen to page is the first line, brush to canvas is the gesture, and the E above middle C is the note on which a great many of Burt Whistle's pieces okay. actually start. <laughs> Not invariably, but, yeah. but Harry yeah. likes to, like well, to start if you, yeah. some, quite often the E above middle C. So, and, and the whole business of treading, I think, of certain angels has, um, if I'm right, uh, aspects of that in it. Um, yeah, the the angel of Kiel is Anhedonia. Um, she sleeps at the foot of your bed, hmm. and when you wake at the dead hour, speaks to you as a man on a ledge, stranded as she is stranded between heaven and earth, and set to fly. And there are in, images of that sort all over my work, and I, and I and I like to come back to them in that same way, um, where the reader is suddenly reinterpreting an image that he or she has come across before uh, in the light of the poem that it's now in. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. So that you can come back. I mean, white, for example. I mean, the colour white is all over my work because mm. um, uh, white is, is the, for me, the colour of death. And uh, um, black, is, black is erasure, but white is effacement. And... Um, so notions of white, so a white bed and a white room mm. is for me the that's that's the end, that's yeah. death, that's the moment. Um that's the moment when death is going to occur. 
of course, the angel of the good death mm. brings to a white room a white bed. And then, you know, the white images continue the full moon. And then the white silence to empty walls, a white book, your last and best lies where it fell. In fact, Loss was going to be called the White Book until somebody else published a book of that title. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so white and whiteness and white light, you know, occurs everywhere, but it, but it always has a different weight and a different density, mm. um, I think. In, in, and I like the idea of a reader coming back to, to that and, and hearing it again so that it's familiar, like the Tristan Chord. Uh, or Harry's ear above Middle Sea or something, or a painter's obs obsessive image, but also seeing that in context, because this is um, a previously used image or a previously used concept in a new poem, yeah. that it informs that poem in a different way yeah. while actually retaining its integrity. Yeah. Yeah. And the end of that that Angel of Good Death poem, where you've got all those, the white room, the white bed, the white silence, the white light. The last line, uh, there's this wonderful last verse, um, about when she comes to you with whiskey when you call for it, and come to you naked in the small house. Then she comes to your funeral, as promised, in Doi Blanc, which I had to look up. <laughs> okay. But um, yeah. that's a sort of white, a, a white mourning dress. Yes, sort of, it's, yeah, it, it, yeah. it's um, there are cultures... Well, you don't go to a funeral in black, you go in white. Yeah, um, yeah. I think Japan is one such okay, yeah. culture. And I just like the idea. I've told everyone they have to turn up to my funeral in white. Yeah. Um, just because black is so forceful and so indelible in a mm. kind of way. Mm. And, and white is just, it's, it's, a, it's a color of, of negativity. And since I don't believe in the kind of afterlife that that traditional Christianity believes in, um, I think probably that effacement is what happens, and mm. I'm sort of okay with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with being effaced, um, yeah. as opposed to you know mourned and wept over, and mm. this idea of just fading, mm. <laughs> fading rather fast. Um, mm. Yeah. Moving, uh, we could turn from writing to reading, and I just wondered. Are there poets who stayed with you all your all your writing life? You know, who came with you all this way? Who who's still there with you? Well, everyone is still there with me. It's got to be the answer to that. I mean, except the mediocre, which mm. I mm. got rid of. I hope mm. um, there are things. Um, Alfred Noyes' poem, "The Highwayman," oh, wow. when I was a child, yeah. just obsessed me. Yeah. And I read it again and yeah. again and again, and. Incredible rhythm to that oh, poem, yeah. Yeah. Back he spurred like a mm. madman, yeah. shrieking a curse to the sky with the white road smoking behind him in his rapier brandished high. Blood red were his spurs of the golden noon, wine red was his velvet coat. When they shot him down on the highway, down like a dog on the highway, and he lay in his blood in the highway with a bunch of lace at his throat. Oh, God almighty. <laughs> yeah. But I went to see my aunt recently, my mother's half-sister, who is getting on in years now, um, and I was talking about my childhood with her, and 
she remembered that she used to read that poem to me and that I used to cry. Mm. <laughs> um, in fact, I cried at so many things when I was a child. There was a book called King of the Rushy River, which was about a little girl whose father was a sailor and used to have to go off sailing and left her with this woman who looked after her who was horribly cruel to her and dressed her in rags and so on. And then one day the father came back and saw what was going on and the horrible woman was punished. And the fa But she had a friend who was a swan hmm. and it used to um, take her on its back and, and fly with her and oh, I was in heaven. And it used to make me cry. And in the end, I was told I shouldn't, I couldn't read it anymore. I was not allowed to read too it upsetting because it was it was upsetting me too much yeah. and so forth. And um, my aunt found me reading it behind the sofa <laughs> and weeping copiously, and I had to pray for forgiveness. So, yeah, that those childhood poems, um, especially especially poems of that sort, mm. and especially that poem, and then latterly, I mean. How could you possibly do without Shakespeare? How could you possibly do? I'm just talking English language now. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, but I suppose the poets that I go back to again and again are Eliot, Geoffrey hmm. um, Hill. Yeah. Um, Is that Wasteland Eliot or Four Quartets Eliot? If they're slightly all of Eliot, all really. of Eliot. Yeah. yeah, but I think probably Four Quartets. Yeah. Uh, well, the Wasteland I adore. I mean, I recently did. I co-read. The Wasteland at uh, the Turner Gallery in, mm. in Margate with um, Richard Scott and Hannah Sullivan was organised by Richard Skinner. Yeah, in Margate for obvious reasons. And yeah, I, it, it was the first modernist poem that I really took on, mm. or it took me on. <laughs> and it's an extraordinary piece of work, um, not least for Pound's interventions. Um, so Hill, Geoffrey Hill, Mercy and Hymns? Or, yeah, you know, Mercy and Hymns I yeah, adore, yeah. but anything of his really. I mean, I agree that some of it is you struggle with, one struggles mm. with, but that's okay. As Hill himself said, life's difficult, why shouldn't poetry be? You mm. know? Yeah. Um, uh, Wallace Stevens. Yeah. And I would, you know, I mean, I, I'm, there's a whole group of people in Shakespeare and modernism that um you know and and foreign poetry i mean ritzos for example yeah whom i've been living with for 20 years one way or another as translator yes as, as a versioner yeah mm. um and uh, you know you wouldn't read Eliot without reading dante without being sent to dante mm. chaucer i mean you know parliament of fowls for mm. example i mean like, you know you know the life so short, the craft so long to learn. I mean, mm. my God, you know, God. Mm. So, just everything really. But I mean, modern stuff. I mean, you know, I take Hughes uh, to a desert island. I would take. I was going to ask you if you had a desert island list. You know, those sort of two, three, four poems that you couldn't live without. It sounds like some of them are in your head anyway. Could, but, they uh, are, yeah. But, um, I, I probably got more in my. I probably memorized more than three or four. Yeah, which would they yeah. be? The, the, the three I, or four that you enough, took on a desert island. The ones I memorized. Well, I, I I can't think which the poems would be. I mean, I couldn't make a choice. I mean, how could you cho choose between, you know, a poem by Seamus Heaney, a poem by Larkin, or a poem? Although I have to say, with Larkin, there are poems of his that I like that contain lines I can't bear, which is a weird thing. But mm. but, but nonetheless, mm. that's that's the case. Or poem, lines I don't like. Or, don't think work or something. So the desert island things. You would, yeah. You, yeah well, yeah. I take Hughes and Heaney, and of course I would. Yeah. Larkin somewhat reluctantly, but yes. I would. 
Um, but, you know, would you take Plath? Well, I suppose you would. You know, mm. if you're going to take Plath, would you take Anne Sexton? Yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to say. The poems that I have by heart are really quite weird. I mean, I've got, um, I think I've got Auden's Musée de, de, de Beaux-Arts by heart. That's, that's all I've got, as I walked out, you know, his ballad. But I don't know, yeah. I've got... When you said weird poems, I thought you were going to uh, mention Lightweight Dirge. Oh yes, well you see, but but all the early English poetry you'd want yeah. to take with you, lightweight dirge, you know, trois corpses. Oh, but I've got yeah. those by heart, so yeah, I kind yeah. of. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, if 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 they, um, and the poem that that we have a difference of opinion about, uh, on a wind, yeah, uh, on a wind. We don't disagree. It's a brilliant, wonderful, yes, magical, no, we, mysterious no, poem. Yes, yeah, so we disagree about about its nature. We should uh, we should do that uh, so, as a podcast. On, on West Strong Wind. Yeah, should be. So. David, thanks very much indeed. Uh, that's been such a, an incredibly interesting and fascinating uh, talk. And this we've been talking about Of Certain Angels by David Harson, which is available from Daregale Press at www.daregale.com. David, thank you very much. My pleasure.